I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for finding Whitehall Sources. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from The Resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're travelling for business or leisure, at The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident, who have proudly backed us since day one. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's the resident we head to, and it's the resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com. The Rwanda bill has passed. It's now time for the Lords to pass this bill too. This is an urgent national priority. The treaty with Rwanda is signed and the legislation which deems Rwanda a safe country has been passed unamended in our elected chamber. There is now only one question. Will the opposition in the appointed House of Lords try and frustrate the will of the people as expressed by the elected House or will they get on board and do the right thing? It's as simple as that. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. We're recording on Thursday the 18th of January. And as always, here is Kirsty Buchanan, former Special Advisor to Prime Minister Theresa May. Hello, Kirsty. Hello, greetings. Welcome. Uh, how are you doing? Uh, I am good. I'm sitting in a French house, which is like a building site. So <laughs> I am under many, many blankets for it is very cool. Well done. Well, we'll warm you up over the course of the next sort of half hour or so with some good political chat on Whitehall sources. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, we are going to focus today on really the week that uh, Rishi Sunak has had, and indeed the week the Conservative Party has had, uh, given the back and forth over the Rwanda deportation legislation. The latest twist in this, Rishi Sunak warning that the House of Lords must not, quote, frustrate the will of the people by opposing the government's Rwanda legislation. Uh, so it has passed. The Safety of Rwanda Bill is its official name. It was passed in the Commons on Wednesday. 11 Conservative MPs attempted to vote it down. 60 
Tory MPs backed amendments designed to strengthen the Rwanda plan in their view. And Kirsty, just by way of context in all of this, the back and forth with those who were kind of pushing the amendments, the I suppose were trying to portray themselves as, you know, exerting influence over the government, trying to change this bill. And in the end, they kind of caved, really, and they, and they, they went along with it. But that didn't stop it being a particularly messy week. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, we, we can talk about this in depth, but the, um, the the bottom line of this was, you know, this was a game of chicken and uh, the rebels blinked first. What what was it that made them blink? Was there something that, that tips them, do you think? I think it's a multiplicity of things. I think, um, one, I think Keir Starmer overplayed his hand at PMQs um, and going on the attack uh, on the Rwanda bill was always going to kind of rally some back behind the government. Uh, I think there is some truth to Lee Anderson's blunt assessment about why he didn't uh, vote against the bill at third reading was because uh, Labour MPs were all giggling and laughing. Um, so I think Labour slightly overplayed its hand. Mm. Um, and I think that they, you know, a lot of them backed down and bottled it because the reality was if you had voted down um, key, nay, flagship now uh, government legislation, uh, it would have prompted, uh, it might have prompted a general election, at which point a lot of them could kiss goodbye to their seats. So I think it was a combination of that. I'd like to say that it was about they'd accepted that making pursuit of perfection was the enemy of the good and had compromised, but I think it was more about, the, you know, they they blinked, you know, they stared down the, the, the barrel of the gun and thought, you know, I don't want to pull the trigger just yet because yeah. it'll be my seat. Yeah. Uh, we want to focus on this, on this, on the episode today and, and kind of try to understand really what on earth was going on, the back and forth and indeed where we've ended up. So let's welcome to the podcast Anne Milton, who was a Conservative MP, a former whip as well and Minister of State for Skills and Apprenticeships. She left Parliament as an independent MP in 2019, having lost the Conservative whip. Anne, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, it's great to speak to you. Shall we start with a kind of broad take from you, Anne? You know, as you watch this week unfold around the Rwanda bill, what, what were you? What was your perception of what was going on inside the Conservative Party? It, it felt a bit of a mess, to be honest. Um, it, it didn't feel that the government had got a grip on this. I mean, the key job of the Whip's office at a time like this is to be able to predict the number of votes. That's It's all about counting. It's all about the numbers. But uh, it just felt an awful mess. But that is really how it's felt for the last six months. So um, nothing new there. In terms of, again, your perception of the whipping operation, as you say, I'm quite fascinated by this. When rebels are kind of gathering on any bit of legislation, how do you, what do you do? What is the first thing you do? Is it about trying to converse with them and understand them? How do you approach them? Well, the whip's office, any whip's office, should always be aware of what the government is planning and what backbenchers view of what the government is planning. Actually, in the current state of affairs, I think you might include 
some of the ministers as well in that because, you know, we had ministers resign this week, people who hold, held um, offices, anyway, deputy chairman of the party. So the Whips Office should always know. And you should have three columns, people who will support the government on a particular issue, people who are maybe a bit undecided, and people who've indicated they're likely to be against something the government is doing. And that should be a rolling spreadsheet on all the things that are coming up in the next year. Mm. And the essence for the WHIPS office is to move people from I'm not terribly happy to the I will vote and support the government. Um, and the way you move that middle column, if you like, to supporting the government is you arrange meetings with ministers to try and reassure them and hope to get them over. The people who've indicated they are likely to vote against the government, you try to move to the middle column. So try and um, answer their concerns. And in that end column, those who are likely to vote against the government, um, not only would they you arrange meetings with ministers, but you'd also arrange meetings with possibly the prime minister in certain circumstances. That is certainly what happened over Brexit. But you have to be aware of the fact that those that are, are likely to rebel against the government, if they're organised, they should also have their own whipping operation. So there's a bit of push and pull. Those who want to rebel against the government will be trying to pull those middle polymers to their side, while the government will be trying to pull those middle polymers to their side. So it's quite complicated. Mm. And you have to do it day by day, literally, because things change. Um, people are got at on both sides. People are persuaded to support the government. I think the key thing about this week is that the only people that want a general election probably are the people who are leaving Parliament. And probably the people that are leaving Parliament can't wait for a general election because it must be very painful to be a part of this. Um, so if if the vote had gone against the government, I mean, the Labour Party, I think, would have tabled a vote of no confidence in the government. They would have lost that. But the government would be even more damaged, if that were possible, than it is already. Yeah. It's also fascinating from the rebel side too because the one thing that the European Research Group had, which were the kind of constant rebel group of uh, of the Theresa May Brexit years, was that they had a, their own very good whipping operation um, and they were very good and solid on their numbers, whereas I think because the ERG's hold for a number of reasons has has been uh, has waned and it's been replaced by these so-called five families factions who have got different agendas, slightly different agendas uh, all round. They've lost that ability to to move as a block, as a real block, if you like, and their whipping operation has denuded. Actually, I think that the whipping operation around this particular set of votes. Uh, regardless of what we think about, you know, the management of government right now anyway. But the actual whipping operation was quite good and there was a quiet confidence from Downing Street from, you know, f you know, from, from the start of the week because I, I think that they were pretty clear that when it came to the third reading that they would, you know, that they would get it over the line. Um, but I just wonder whether you sort of agreed with that read that the rebels have lost their ability to properly whip too. 
No, I, I think that's absolutely valid. And as you say, the so-called five families, that, that disperses, say, the ERG's impact. Any one of those five, it, dis- it, it dissipates their, and disperses their, their influence. If rebels are acting as a block, then the government's in a lot more trouble. But I don't think either side can be said to have done particularly well. Um, whichever way you look at it, because it feels a mess. Because although, and I always used to say when I was Deputy Chief Whip, it's not just about today's votes. The trouble is the damage it leaves behind in its wake. You might have got the vote through. They might have got third reading through, but it doesn't mean the problems have gone away. Mm. Well, that was that brings me actually to this question, which is, and in your estimation, does, does the government have more of a grip on the party today than it did last weekend or not? What is the kind of status of the government when it comes to discipline, I suppose, really within the party? Well, you, you can't discipline a party, I don't think, when you're so low in the polls, because fundamentally it's every woman and man for themselves, because what everybody, what all MPs, ministers included, are trying to do is to save their own seat. I mean, you know, they're saving their job, literally. So whatever the government does or says or whatever it threatens or persuades with, Fundamentally, people want to hang on to their seat, and uh, you know, not not unreasonably. Actually, yeah, you know, it's yeah. a job. They that that's that's what they want to do. So it doesn't matter how persuasive the arguments are. If an MP has say got three four hundred emails urging them to vote one way, it's quite difficult to turn that down when the party as a whole is down at you know 25 25 20 25 mm. um, percent in the in the polls um, the, the cry will be divided parties don't win elections so the counter arguments that is is exactly that we won't win if we're divided well you are divided mm. I, I mean there is no getting away from that and I don't think that can be repaired. There's not a sunlit upland um, from where I'm sitting that will come their way in the next six months where everybody will hold hands and say that they love each other. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh- <laughs> I would pay good money to see that, though. Do you think that that kind of chronic breakdown in discipline, um, you know, became a, such a habit during you know, the Theresa May Brexit deal uh, delivery or lack of delivery years that that actually, you know, that was that created a permanent fracture within the party that is now, frankly, just, you know, uh, makes it pretty much or parts of it pretty much ungovernable, no matter who's in charge. Um, no, I don't think this goes back to Theresa May because Boris Johnson managed to completely turn that round and got the eight-seat majority that he did. So everybody did um, <clears throat> run along holding hands with Boris Johnson as leader. The problems um, go back to Boris Johnson's leadership. And, you know, he wasn't honest, he didn't have integrity, and that is when the fractures appeared. And so, you know, those five families, if you like, you, you could source them all from that moment. Mm-hmm. 
I, mm. I noticed, Kirsty, on that on that note, actually, um, that last weekend I was speaking to Danny Kruger on Times Radio. Uh, he was, I suppose, he was kind of one of the leaders of this whole thing. Really, he's one of the leaders of one of, of one of the three biggest groups of, on the conservative right. So himself, Sir John Hayes, and Mark Francois uh, wrote together for the Telegraph, and they compared themselves to the Tory Spartans who sank Theresa May's Brexit deal, um, trying to get colleagues to join them in standing firm against pressure from Downing Street. I mean, there was a bit of a show of support for that during the amendment stage of all of this, but ultimately um, not for the final conclusion of it. But what do you make of that comparison to the Tory Spartans well, of look, Brexit? Well, for, for, you know, for, for people that, you know, for listeners, I am pulling a face uh, at, at the word Spartans, um, partly because ridiculous grandiose, uh, you know, self-referential kind of way that, you know, the rebels view themselves. We're the five families, we're the Spartans. You know, you know you're a bunch of uh, ill-disciplined, uh, self-serving MPs uh, trying to make an incredibly difficult job, uh, much more difficult uh, uh, by the minute. Um, I mean, look, there's a sliding doors point here for me. If we take the week and it's round... Um, there's a fascinating piece in Con Home that I think really brings this home. There's a sense that this was uh, pitch rolled to be the moment where uh, Rishi Sunak's leadership was challenged um, and possibly replaced. Imp- incredible though that seems to to be, uh, with with yet another leader before the election. Um, and in essence, we had the start of the week, we had that poll in the Telegraph funded by a mysterious group called, the, I think it's the, the British Conservative Alliance. Nobody quite knows who they are. That was aligned with some, you know, an op-ed from Lord Frost, almost sort of saying, look, if you can't get this bill through, you know, you know, where do we go from from here type of thing? And a poll that said 11 cabinet ministers were in line to lose their seats. Then you have obviously those sixty-two amendments, and then they, you know, and then they bottled it. And I think one of the reasons they bottled it, as we've already said, uh, is in part because they don't have that kind of block unity that they used to have uh, under the days of uh, the Theresa May Brexit deal, and they've kind of splintered. But also, I think I think some people bottled it. Now, interestingly, Kruger, Hayes, and um, uh, Mark Francois didn't. They were amongst the eleven rebels who who stood firm, if you like, and voted against the third reading. Uh, but I think, you know, common sense was 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 brought to bear. And I think a lot of them were spoken to by, you know, what they call the, you know, the 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 Knights of the Right, you know, the the Jacob Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg, Sir Ian Duncan Smith, and sort of said, look, you know, you think that you can bring about a change of leader you might very well just bring about a collapse of a government and a general election. Uh, so I think that, you know, like I say, they, they, st- they stared into the abyss and enough of them backed away uh, for that bill to go through. I mean, Anne's right. Though. I mean, it's not like, you know, now um, I, I think it makes a challenge on Rishi Sunak's leadership very difficult now, very difficult. Uh, but it's not like you now have a party uh, of unity and because Rishi has won this, battle that he has won the war by by no stretch of the imagination um but i do think there's a there was a you know there was a world where had they held firm we would be in very different territory at the end of the week than this slightly kind of damp squib feeling and it's not the first time the rebels have marched themselves up a hill and marched themselves back down again so if i were them i'd stop 
referring to themselves in such, you know, referential kind of fighting terms because, you know, they do have a habit of bottling it more than more than ever of standing firm like the Spartans. On a more serious note, for anybody who is sort of conservative inclined, um, this is all very serious. This is a battle for the heart and soul of the Conservative Party that we're seeing played out on various bits of legislation. And and that battle does matter because what none of them are really thinking is what happens after a general election if the Conservatives lose. So this is very serious. And and even though I might, you know, violently disagree with some of those five families, this battle is going to rage and it's going to rage on because they're after the heart and soul of the party. That you can track back. And I think you can track that back to, you know, even David Cameron's year. It was always simmering under the surface. The ERG were always simmering. And it was a battle for the heart and soul of the party. And if I go back then, I think what is quite interesting, there are there were MPs who would have seen David Cameron lose a general election in order that their pure vision, what they considered to be pure conservatism, won through. Just to row in on the on the back of what Anne's saying then, she's a hundred percent right about you know, the kind of existential crisis that the Conservatives are still gripped by. Um, I mean, look, let's make no mistake about it. I can tell you for a fact that people were ringing round the Conservative Party and discussing a leadership challenge this week, right? Really? It is a just, it is a fact. I know it sounds incredible that they would, again, the parts of the party would contemplate it, but that is the depths of despair that some within the party have got to. And looking at a poll today that puts the Tories at 20%, you know, I have sympathy with the, with the depths of despair, if not, um, you know, the solution to it. The solution to it, if you're down the street, is unity. You know, united parties and discipline uh, is what wins you elections, not fighting like ferrets in a sack. But there is, Anne's quite right, there is an existential crisis there. The, the story of the Conservative Party over the last, you know, 15 years is about, um, you know, how it manages the insurgent right of the party and therefore what sort of party is it now? And there is a potential, I don't I don't think it's a realistic, but there is a potential in the wake of a really bad election defeat for a complete split within the party because these sides now seem irreconcilable between the sort of one nation uh, element of the party and the kind of, uh, the new right of of the party, if you like, you know, there doesn't seem to be any capacity to compromise. And you know, as we've said before, you know, this was always quote unquote, you know, come come a cliche, a broad church. Mm. But it seems like you know the roof is, you know, it's been strained so much now that the roof of that church is is close to collapse. And I, you know, and until you either get a leader uh, of such charisma that he can unite. Or an election victory of such impact that you know that the leader can rule the roost. Uh, I just think you're going to have these two elements straining in different directions. And do you recognise the Conservative Party that you look in on now? No, mm. <laughs> in, in a word, yeah. not not really. I, I mean, I I don't know what happened. I, I, I mean, for me personally, you know, I resigned as a minister the day Boris Johnson became leader of the Conservative Party, and I, I, I would put a lot of the damage down to him 
um, and the way that he um, ran the Conservative Party and his style of leadership. Um, but I do not recognize this at all. And it must be very grim. You know, in amidst all this, there are good MPs, you know, mm. who've got the right instincts, who are moderate, but that feels as if in the Conservative Party there is no room for moderation anymore. And it's a difficult cry. You know, moderation is quite a difficult cry. It's not a, a battle cry, really. But um, it is moderation that wins the day with the British public. Um, <laughs> what do we want? Moderation. When do we want it? Well, whenever's <laughs> most convenient for you. Yes, exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> but but Anne's right. It's lost the, you know, and here's, here's the other thing. I mean, leaving aside the existential crisis within the party, if you're a voter for the Conservative Party, what Conservative Party are you voting for? Are you voting for the kind of centre ground, one nation, you know, uh, socially liberal um, uh, conservative party of, of you know, of, of Cameron or Theresa May? Or are you voting for, you know, the kind of Suella Braverman wing of the conservative party, you know? And I just, and, and you can't reconcile those two. Are you, you know, you've, you know, I, I, it is a, it is a, uh, as a brand, it's completely kind of fractured. And I don't know, leaving aside the fact that, you know, it is true that divided parties do not win. One of the reasons they don't win is because if, if you can't control that, it doesn't give you much faith in you running a country. But 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 also because who are you voting for? What, what part of the Conservative Party are you voting for? And I, like Anne, you know, um, have considerable difficulty about, you know, where the party has gone. I mean, I'm a radical centrist. It's, uh, you know, the future direction of travel, as far as I can see in the Conservative Party, is nowhere good, you know? Yeah. Um, and just a, a sort of concluding thought from you then, it's been so good to get your, your insight. As we sort of, as this week has culminated, and based on, on all that we're talking about here, just to pull it all together, where is the influence coming from within the Conservative Party? And is it influence for good, if I can phrase it like that? What, how would you sort of uh, analyse that? I don't think there's any one seat of influence in the Conservative Party. I think the only thing that matters to the Conservative Party in Westminster now is to try and mitigate a loss at a general election. Mm. The, the big essay question, which isn't for this podcast, is are those broad churches were the Labour Party and the Conservative Party now too broad to continue with our current voting system. It's a really interesting thought. That's for another day. Yeah, well, uh, noted. We'll have you back to discuss it in lots of detail another time, <laughs> if you don't mind. Uh, and thank you very much. Thanks for joining the podcast. It's thank a pleasure. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let me tell you about the resident hotel where I just stayed. That's right, I have been to the resident in Liverpool for a lovely, lovely stay. I have to be honest, it was wonderful. And I'm not just saying that, I promise you it was great. The warmest of welcome from the lovely reception team, including a lovely welcome card signed by Megan and the resident team. We were offered a map, we were offered guidance on where to go for food and for drinks. The location was great. We had several activities in Liverpool. We had a friend's birthday dinner. Then we were bowling, we were doing all of that stuff, and all of it was within a 10-minute walk of where the hotel was, which was perfect. Not only that, we had guidance on the best local restaurants and bars where we could also get discounts as a result of staying at the resident. The little kitchen in the hotel room was very, very helpful for coffee drinkers. Unbelievably, I'm not one. There's a little coffee machine right there as well. Do you know what was lovely as well? City centre location... Double-double glazing. There was the outdoor window, then an indoor window. No noise. I slept like an actual log. Beautiful room, very spacious, well-equipped, lovely hotel, lovely staff, lovely location. Take this as a personal endorsement. I've been there, done that, and you should do the same. Stay at the resident. Thanks to Anne Milton, who was a Conservative MP, although she left Parliament as an independent MP in 2019. She lost the Conservative whip, having previously been a Conservative deputy whip. Uh, really fascinating insight from her, Kirsty, on on this week, which, as you say, I think has been a bit of a damp squib. But let's just let's be real about this. The damp squib has been some has been compounded by a YouGov survey for The Times published today, Thursday, finding that support for the Conservatives has fallen to 20 percent. That level was last seen in October 2022, which we'll all remember was just before Liz Truss was forced out of office. Uh, and I think, crucially, um, the survey finds that voters who back the Tories in 2019 have little faith in Rishi Sunak's ability to deal with immigration. Uh, 35% say they trust him on the issue. 54% trust Nigel Farage on that particular issue. Uh, but this poll just compounding the, the difficult week, basically, for Rishi Sunak and, and pointing to the electoral struggle that awaits him. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I'm giving serious thought to, to, to renaming Rishi Sunak's government the one step forward, two steps back government every time uh, you know, Rishi Sunak gets a, a, a victory, uh, then something comes along the next day that kind of wipes that out and, and makes things worse. So no sooner can he claim, you know, lay claim to have, you know, having a significant kind of tactical victory over his own party, weird but true, mm. um, uh, you know, this, this poll comes along and crystallises exactly why 
uh, you know, some with you know significant rump within the party think they're perfectly within their rights uh, to have conversations about replacing the leader uh, again, um, uh, because the poll ratings aren't shifting. In fact, well, they are shifting. They're arguably getting worse. And you know, one poll doth yeah. not a summer make. Um, so you know, let's not overreact about one poll. But there, it is a fact that you know the polls have been, you know, twenty. You know, points behind Labour for you know an entire year now. Now, interestingly, uh, I think that that Number Ten have finally uh, hit on the right strategic approach, um, which is kind of broadly the sort of you know better the devil you know than the devil you don't. It's a very turbulent and uncertain world, and I think it plays to the Conservatives' strengths around sort of security. Um, uh, and it's and it's also kind of sort of said, look, you know, uh, the plan is beginning to work. You know, don't go back to square one with with Labour. Stick with the plan. Um, so I think they're in the right territory, having abandoned that ridiculous uh, assertion at conference last year of trying to portray Rishi Sunak as the candidate of change. Um, uh, I mean, just a nonsense, particularly like if you want real change, there's this Labour Party over there run by this guy called Keir Starmer. That'll that'll do it for you. Uh, so I always thought that that was an absolutely bonkers piece of positioning. Um, and I'm glad to see that they have ditch that in favour of a kind of long-term plan. Having said all that, um, uh, I think it's interesting to note that if anybody ever says to you, you know, media training or at least good media training is a load of old hooey, I would point to two things this week. One, I would have pointed to Ed Davies. It's excruciating oh, interview last week with, yes. I think it was Paul Brown from ITV, yeah. who repeatedly asked him to say sorry uh, for failing to... Yeah, failing to engage, uh, failing to engage with uh, Alan Bates and the campaign uh, for justice for the uh, sub postmasters uh, at a time when David was uh, the, the postal services minister. Um, now, you know, <laughs> I don't know who advised him to do this, but he kept on saying, "Oh, you know, of course I regret, I regret this, you know, I regret that." Just say sorry, man. I mean, it's a natural human response. Look, with the benefit of hindsight, we can all be wise, but obviously I'm sorry, uh, you know, for the hurt I've caught, you know, but whatever, right? Um, just unfathomable. And why you would, uh, on such a sticky wicket, why on earth you would put yourself in front of Paul Brand anyway, who is a brilliant gotcha journalist. It's kind of you know, he's literally his MO, um, it's just unfathomable to me. So so there is that. And then I watched the Rishi Sunak press conference this morning. And okay, clearly your key message right now is we have a plan, stick with the plan, uh, don't vote for Labour, we'll go back to square one, right? Okay, fine. But there's a difference between having a key message and saying the key message so much that it becomes risible in one press conference. I mean, I don't know if anybody indulged in, and we should probably go back and do this at some point, indulged in stick to the plan bingo. But the man must have said it like, you know, 50 times. Okay, we get that this is your core message. You have a plan. Stick to the plan. The plan is delivering don't go back to square one with Labour. So we are going to hear this, by the way, ad nauseum between now and the election um, in much the same way as with Osborne. We had that brilliant um, uh, message discipline uh, 
uh, about a long-term economic plan. Um, uh, but it was it's so overworked already, it's almost become a, you know, a, a, a a mickey take of itself mm. um so uh, if i could just make a plea for good media training uh <laughs> to, well, exactly uh, you know it's not it's not uh, it's not um it's quite ridiculous to have two such great examples of bad media training within the space of just a few days and both from party leaders by the way both from experienced people that this isn't these are not new situations for them to be in in many ways, uh, yeah. No, I, 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 I thought it was. I thought this morning was extraordinary. Um, and every time he said it again, I was like, ah, oh! <laughs> no, because it just was so, so overworked. And you'd have to go back. I know because I looked this up. You'd have to go back to 1991 for the classic of all time of uh, uh, of how you know saying the wrong thing in public can destroy your brand which was for people who probably weren't born then it was Gerald Ratner who ran a chain of high street jewelry shops which sold shall we say kind of uh, economically priced jewelry uh, and he went on uh, some interview and said yeah well, of course everybody knows our jewelry is crap um and that was it you know <laughs> an entire oh, business word exploded in one unnecessary moment of honesty. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so from a comms professional this morning, uh, I just wanted to stick needles yeah. in my ears because he says it one more time. Uh, but it is the right position for them. It is this kind of best of the devil you know strategy is the right one. I think they should stick with it. I think they've taken far too long to get into the right position. And once they're in it, they shouldn't overwork the groove. Mm. Uh, but I think they're in the right place now. And I think they should stick with the plan. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, uh, at least you've got the message. Um, I was just thinking there on, on your Gerald Ratner story, um, CJ in the West Wing, uh, when she's the press secretary, refers to, I can't remember exactly what she's talking about, but she refers to the classic Washington scandal, we screwed up by telling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> which, um, which, which I think is quite nice. And which politician was it? Bush was it? Bush that said, uh, "If you can fake sincerity, you've got it made." Yes. Uh, it was probably someone like much, you know. But, um, uh, but, but yeah, I just there's message discipline and then there's mm. message overworking. And my God, did we see a masterclass in message overworking this morning? Wow. Well, um, can I, can I ask yeah, like on, on, on the message right of? Yeah. And on the message of this morning, it was very much kind of pointing now to the Lords, which is just the way this works, you know, that the, the legislation now goes to the Lords. But Rishi Sunak really warning that the House of Lords must not frustrate the will of the people. And everybody's kind of anticipating a bit of difficulty, certainly, in the House of Lords with this. Lots of peers are kind of not in favour of the Rwanda legislation. So, so what is that, Kirsty? Is that teeing up a fall guy? Should the legislation... Uh, be changed and tweaked by the House of Lords? Is it kind of finding somebody in advance that the finger of blame can be pointed at? Or is it just him being authentically, well, this is how it works and they better not mess it up? Uh, I, I don't think it's either of those things. I think it's rhetorical flex right. of muscle. Uh, I think he's trying to be, you know, trying to build on that kind of, you know, I stared down the rebellion in the commons and now I'm saying to the Lords, don't you mess with the will of the people, yada, yada, yada. Um, uh, the reality is, and he, he will know this as much as anybody, that the Lords will, you know, delay it. Maybe they might amend it a bit, you know, uh, but they won't block it. It's not what the Lords do. This is a flagship piece of legislation. 
uh, it has passed comfortably through the house. Um, you know, and the reality is if it gets ping-pong backwards and forwards, you know, ultimately the government can and will impose its will in any in any event. So, um, no, I mean, it's going to have a rocky ride in the Lords because, uh, you know, we still have this debate about um, whether, uh, you know, whether it is a breach of international law uh, to ignore Rule 39. What is Rule 39? I hear you cry with great excitement. <laughs> what is well, Rule 39? Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, can't get the stuff. These days, can you? Um, look, so so imagine such a thing is possible. The bill has passed. We have uh, a clutch of people that we want to put on a plane to Rwanda. They're on the tarmac, um, uh, and a section, uh, a section, a Rule Thirty Nine order comes down. Uh, now, in essence, what that is is uh, an attempt to injunct the plane and stop it taking off. Um, uh, for a variety of different reasons, but normally because uh, there is a challenge to the kind of legal representation and rights of the people on board. Um, and uh, what Rishi Sunak has said, and I think it's one of the things that helped some of the rebels peel off, was that he would ignore a Rule 39 if it came from a Strasbourg court and he would say to the flight, off you go. Mm. Um, I cannot imagine that the Lords... Uh, is going to uh, accept that without a fight. And I should imagine that one of the first things they'll do is try and impose some, uh, uh, try and reimpose on the bill that, you know, a section 30, uh, Rule 39 would be respected. But that will just get overturned back in the House of Commons. So I think this morning was about him, you know, trying to build on this kind of tough guy uh, image. Um, and the interesting thing about the YouGov poll, sorry, if I can just no. if I can just go back to the YouGov poll, I think you know, and and it's one of those things that you know we're potentially going to be trying to see if we can get under the skin of. I think there's a difference between what people are bothered about and what they tell pollsters that they're bothered about, and what in the final analysis will make them vote for a certain party. So I think, you know, people say, oh, you know, people's top three concerns are cost of living, NHS and immigration, right? That may be true, but how many people would actually vote for a party entirely because of its uh, its positioning over immigration? As opposed to, I mean, I can't, you know, we do, po you know, I work at Stonehaven's consultancy, but, you know, we do polling focus groups all the time. I have never known a time where cost of living is so kind of dominant, every nation, every region, every demographic, this is what people will vote on in the election, you know. And there might be a handful of people, and it's interesting that, you know, to see how well that reform, so on the right of the Conservative Party, we've now got, you know, reform coming up the, uh, up the rails, and at the moment it's polling quite high. And it will, and it will make the difference in some seats, I'm sure, because some conservatives will peel off uh, to reform, and possibly some Labour voters too. I mean, uh, UKIP, which was the you know the previous incarnation, it took almost as many votes from Labour as it took from the Conservatives. But you know, 
how many people will actually make immigration the defining factor on which they vote as opposed to cost of living, I should imagine is pretty small, uh, which again makes it very curious that, you know, this, you know, this bill that Rishi Sunak could quite easily have moved away from um, has made, you know, the kind of flagship piece of government legislation uh, one of the main things on which his premiership will be uh, judged by. Um, uh, I just, I'm not, I'm not sold on the fact that you know, there's a there's a great big swathe of millions of people out there who are going to vote uh, because they don't think, you know, uh, that the government's stance on on Rwanda is tough enough. I just, I don't buy it. I never have. Mm. Uh, thank you, Kirsty. Uh, that is very helpful analysis. I'm sure we will discuss the Rwanda bill again. I was just having a little look at um, Henry Zeffman, uh, who is now at the BBC, actually, isn't he? Uh, formerly of uh, the Times, mm-hmm. Times Radio and whatnot. Uh, but he's been talking, he's been tweeting today about the kind of schedule and all of this for Rwanda. So much of the timetable he understands has already been agreed. The second reading is coming on January the 29th. The committee stage will be February the 12th, 14th, 19th. Report will probably come on March the 4th, which means the third reading will be March the 12th. So MPs will be looking at potentially trying to remove any Lord's amendments by about March the 18th. That is in two months from now. So it's not going to be a short or quick process in all of that. And so the Rwanda bill and the Rwanda legislation, indeed, will be talked about over the next couple of months. Uh, So we'll touch on that, of course, on the podcast for you as it unfolds. Uh, lots of issues that we want to get into on the podcast this year, actually, this election year. And as Kirsty was alluding to there, one of the things we're really determined to do is to dive into the issues that actually you care about. Um, is it things like Rwanda and immigration? Is it the cost of living? And specifically within the cost of living, what is it that is bothering you, that you want to vote on? What are the things that are important to you? What are your experiences of those things? If you'd like to take part in the podcast just by dropping us an email, then feel free. It's hello at Whitehall Sources dot com to get in touch uh, we're here every single week to take you inside politics Kirsty and i and guests as well uh, so make sure you follow and subscribe and we'll talk to you again soon hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.